Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 311 of the podcast. It's July 24th, 2018. My guest today is Jess Orr. She is a continuous improvement practitioner at Westrock, a large paper and packaging company where she helps plants foster a culture of continuous improvement and employee engagement. Her experience in her career includes working directly for Toyota Motor Manufacturer in Kentucky. She's particularly passionate about sharing best practices across industries, which motivated her to found her company, Yoka 10 Learning. In today's episode, we talk about her path from being a Six Sigma black belt at a previous company to being a lean thinking engineer at Toyota. How did she progress from solving problems herself to developing others? We'll also talk about a blog post that she wrote for my blog earlier this year about uh, how she and how a team saved 200 jobs. The headline of the post was actually how 200 jobs were saved by engaging employees in continuous improvement. So we'll talk, she'll talk about that story. And uh, we'll talk about other concepts and topics, lean and return on investment, leadership, culture, and more. So I hope you enjoyed the discussion. If you want to find links to her blog post, her website, her LinkedIn page, things like that, you can go to leanblog.org slash 311. Well, Jess, hi. Thank you for being a guest on the podcast. How are you? Thanks, Mark. I'm doing really well. It's a pleasure to be on here. I listen to most of the Lean Blog podcast, so it's exciting to actually be on myself. Well, good. Well, you know, happy to talk to you. And, you know, you've got a lot of uh, great experience and, and stories to share with us today. And you know, I always like to let guests start off by introducing themselves and maybe you can tell the listeners, how did you first get exposed to continuous improvement? Well, my name is Jess Orr, and I work as a continuous improvement practitioner at Westrock. So it's a large paper and packaging company. And I've been in industry for about 12 years, um, you know, kind of the traditional path. I went, went to school for mechanical engineering, and I graduated. And I started working as a tooling engineer, and I had the opportunity to take Six Sigma Black Belt training. And I'd never really seen anything quite like that. Um, some of the tools they taught us, how to improve processes, and really fell in love with it, um, started applying it in my work, started seeing some good results. Um, but it was always very focused on the tools, right? So what tool can I use to solve this problem? How can I solve this problem? And while we saw some, some good gains from a lot of the work that, that was done using that methodology, I noticed that it was limited in, in how well it sustained. There was something that was missing. And I had the opportunity to work for Toyota and that's where I really started to get introduced to, you know, lean concepts and things like respect for people. And that's where I really started understanding, you know, the power of engaging everyone in the process of continuous improvement. And that really just extrapolated um, the journey and my learnings and, and the effectiveness that I was able to facilitate with those teams. And um, I spent about five years at Toyota and then transitioned into my current role. So that, that's where I am now. Mm-hmm. And what types of roles did you have at Toyota? At Toyota, I started off actually working as a stamping die designer. So for new product models that came out, we would have to design the dies um, to stamp the shell body components for them. 
And um, sitting in front of a computer for 10 hours a day was, was not my favorite thing to do. So I transitioned <laughs> to um, a quality engineering role and um, started off as a quality engineer and then moved up to an assistant manager. And, you know, I, I'd be curious to explore a little bit in you know, what you described as a little bit of um, compare and contrast between, you know, Six Sigma certification and projects versus, you know, if you will, a culture of continuous improvement or, you know, a, a lean culture or the environment at Toyota. You know, and I, and I don't say this, I'm not trying to be critical of Six Sigma. I think it's just there's, there's some differences. Six Sigma methods and belts and projects um, can certainly help solve some problems, but like you said, you know, if, if the focus is on tools and, you know, sort of the individual focus of how can I solve it, that's different than what you experienced um, in terms of problem solving and improvement at Toyota, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you said, I definitely would not knock Six Sigma at all. I mean, I still use it in my current work. It's, it's appropriate for depending on, you know, the problem that you're trying to solve. There's certainly some tools that are available there. But what I learned at, at Toyota was it was much more of a holistic approach. You know, it was, you know, how can we engage people, especially the process owners, and I would say that's one of the biggest differences that I found. So with my Six Sigma training, I kind of came in as being the expert, right? I'm the one who's been trained on these tools. I'm the belt. You know, I'm going to kind of, you know, facilitate making these improvements, you know, versus more of um, the approach that I learned at Toyota was really, it was all about the team, right? So how can we engage everyone, especially the people who understand the process the best, the ones that are doing it every day? And it really, I kind of saw like a shift in my role. So I'm not really leading the efforts with this approach. I'm just supporting and facilitating other people to make their work better. And it was, it was, it was a big mind shift for me, really having to learn, you know, what it means to be a project leader is really the one who's, you know, facilitating the team to make those improvements themselves. So it was a mindset and really just a culture shift for me that happened over a period of a few years, but it, the results were very sustainable in terms of, because if it's their idea, they're more likely to, to keep doing it right. They've got some ownership yeah. of it. Yeah, for sure. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, and I've been guilty of, you know, falling into that same trap of, of being the engineer, the expert, the problem solver. Um, right. you know, that was one of the, I think the, recurring themes in the book Practicing Lean that I uh, edited and, you know, the other stories in there and, and, and my own about, you know, failings, uh, you know, for one, being in a culture where uh, it, it was different than Toyota. It wasn't a culture that encouraged everyone to participate in improvement. It was a culture that looked to experts to solve things. So, you know, and I think back to, you know, changes that weren't well accepted or weren't sustained. You know, some of that was on me and I think I've gotten better and, and tried to evolve as a, uh, to be more of a facilitator instead of the one who figures everything out. Um, but I, th I think it can be tough for people if they're not in that Toyota type environment. How do we use Toyota practices, uh, you know, in an environment with, with a different, different culture, a different style of leadership. I mean, maybe, you know, we can come back and talk more about Toyota, but you know, uh, I'm, I'm curious if you've got thoughts, you know, of, of trying to do Toyota type things in a different culture. 
I do. Um, I would say, you know, the culture, the culture at my current company is great in terms of, you know, how they, they really empower me as a practitioner to do what works. Right. And, and that's really the way that I've gotten the most buy-in is, you know, be given, you know, an assignment and given the freedom to, you know, work it the way that I feel is best. But at the end of the day, what really helps with that buy-in from leadership is seeing those results at the end. So, I mean, I would recommend to anybody, you know, it's kind of ask, ask if your leaders are kind of resistant to, to using these types of, um, you know, engagement um, in the process of making those improvements. I, I sometimes ask and I say, suspend your disbelief, you know, give me, give me three months, right? And let's see what the results are. And then we can, we can adjust and adapt based on those. And so far, um, knock on wood, that's worked pretty well, because it, it, this process of, of continuous improvement through employee engagement, it, it works. It really mm-hmm. does. It, it works. And, and I think that's the challenge of, of how can you convince a leader uh, who doesn't share that belief or that mindset? Um, can you even get three months to try it? I mean, I, I wrote a blog post the other day that was sort of triggered by uh, a hospital where you know leaders had you know quite specifically and quite intentionally said um, you know the only improvement we value here is big projects with large ROI, mm. and they they describe what they're doing as lean, and I think well that that kind of misses the mark where you know uh, kaizen is you know Toyota says kaizen continuous improvement is one of the two pillars of the Toyota way along with respect for people like you mentioned earlier. And so it, it just always puzzles me for how an organ, it seems inconsistent or incongruent that an organization can say, uh, on the one hand, we're doing lean, but well, but we don't need that. No, the engaging people in continuous improvement. No, we don't do that. It's like what they, they should just call what they're doing large improvement projects. And, and uh, I'll get off my soapbox. What, what, do you, what do you think about that? No, no, it's true. And I've often thought about that because I mean, I've seen that as well, where, you know, people feel they get excited about the lean tools and they are exciting, you know, one piece flow, a three, you know, tools like that, but they focus so much on the tools that they don't understand that the tools work best in an environment that facilitates people and empowers and educates them on how to use those tools. And I think the reason that companies don't focus on the culture first. It, it kind of seems apparent to us. We've been, been doing this for so long. Why wouldn't you focus on the culture? Culture, it's hard to get your mind wrapped around. You know, what does a culture of continuous improvement look like, right? If we use an A3, we kind of know, okay, here's the format. Here's the steps A through, you know, A through B that we do to, to implement some, a tool. But that, that's easy to get your mind around. It's more difficult to understand, okay, how do we build a culture? And that takes time and it's not easy and it's difficult to measure. And I think, you know, companies worried about the bottom line and savings, right? They want to see tangible things they can measure. Um, and and it's, it's when you focus so much on those results and not the process, you, you lose the results in doing so. It's kind of, it's kind of, I like to, and the analogy of when you're trying to manage your weight, if all you're focused on is that number on the scale, you're going to be limited in how effective you can be. But if you say, no, we're going to focus on the process, right? How am I eating? You know, am I doing the exercise I need to do? Those results, that weight, it, it, it kind of is a byproduct, right? Of focusing on that process, but it's tough. I'll admit it's tough to, to get leaders to understand that. Yeah. And there's sort of, you know, that, that catch 22, um, 
of you know focusing only on results tends to drive not the same level of results as you get from focusing on process. And you know, I mean, we, we of course we care about results, but it's this different. It's this slightly indirect path of you know focusing on the process gets results. You know, I, I don't think Toyota. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this. I don't, I don't think Toyota is engaging people only because it's respectful. I think they're, they're engaging people because it's good for the health of the business over time, right? Yeah, I actually had this same conversation with someone the other day. I said, you know, ethics and morality aside, I think that, you know, so I think of it like if I'm one person trying to make an impact on the results, you know, how, even if I'm, I'm very educated or skilled at it or whatever, how can I be as effective as say a plant of 500 people? Right. I mean, just the, just the sheer scale, right. is going to limit, you know, my, my effectiveness just being one person, but I, I, I would absolutely agree with you. I think it's much as ethics aside. I mean, it is the right thing to do. It's being respectful, but, I think that if you really want to impact your bottom line, this is the way to do it. Yeah. So, you know, you talk about, you know, you ask a good question. How do we build a culture at an organization that's, that's not Toyota, but let, let's go back and, and I'm curious to delve more into your Toyota experience where that culture, uh, at least, you know, to, to whatever extent is, is there. It's by definition, the Toyota culture, the Toyota way. Uh, even though you know, I, I wouldn't expect that um, you know, there's 100% consistent adherence to Toyota principles because they're a huge company and people are complex and I don't expect Toyota to be perfect. But you know, thinking back to that culture that you were hired into and, and operating within, I'm, I'm curious you know, if you have uh, you know, some, some other lessons learned or favorite stories just about the culture or what it was like actually working on the inside there. Yeah, there, there's several things that stand out to me. I mean, obviously, the, the lessons that I learned there were, were numerous, um, but some of the ones that really stuck with me is the value that they placed on, on the frontline workers. Um, they talk, I think, in the Toyota way, they talk about the inverted, um, the inverted organization, right? So the traditional organization is top-down. You've got your leader, your middle management, and the frontline workers. And Toyota said, now we're going to flip that triangle upside down. Right. So we're going to elevate those those frontline workers and the leadership. You know, we exist to support them. And I mean, that to me, it was actually just very striking how that was actually lived out. Um, even things like it was far easier to, to fire someone in management than it was a team member, hmm. uh, which I thought was interesting. Um, and it was very obvious that that was true. Um, but also just the way they engage, there was this, this aura of respect for the team member. Hmm. So we would have the, these huddles for you know, daily huddles where we'd report out on you know, issues that we we're having in quality. And anytime, you know, as an assistant manager, if I got up to speak, I could expect to be challenged and a certain, certain type of questioning that would really, you know, question, did I go about the process the right way? Um, but if a team member um, came up and spoke, someone from the line, it was almost like this, it, it, it was everyone kind of just, you could feel, you know, this level of respect for their expertise, right? This is someone who's doing the process every day. And that really stood out to me, just that difference. I mean, both approaches were respectful. I expected to be challenged as someone is in management, 
but the way that person was given that automatic credibility because of their role as a frontline worker just really stood out to me. Another thing, um, go ahead. Yeah, no, I think that's a really, that's a great turn of phrase there, uh, that aura of respect uh, for the team member. Um, And, you know, I think, you know, that, that, that respect and and listening, um, you know, it's different. I, I, I posted someone on LinkedIn the other day, I just pulled up here. There was an article, um, in health leaders media and on, on, on uh, publication. And, you know, on one level, it was talking about engaging people in improvement. And, and the headline of the article was the case for making simple changes. I'm like, okay, great. You know, I want to read this. But then there's, there's a part here that I highlighted. It says, uh, being human, healthcare staff often find it overwhelming to simply maintain the status quo, much less drive improvements in care. I'm like, so right, right now, I, um, I, my reaction was, well, it sounds like they're blaming staff for not improving. And then it wow. says, you know, even in organizations that are open to changes, and I'm like, ah, oh, okay, well, I think now maybe they're pointing at leadership, you know, if the organization is open to it. And it says there's no time to identify or act on even the simplest improvements. And I think, wow, that that's, you know, that, that's a fairly typical culture. I think it's, I'm curious your reactions to that and, you know, how, how, how it was different, hopefully at Toyota. Yeah, I think that that's very unfortunate um, and, and fundamentally disrespectful. We run into that sometimes in the culture where we almost review that the frontline staff as you know a set of hands, right? So it's a, a machine operator, right? And that's what he does. He operates that machine. And um, you forget that you know every human comes with a mind too, and and no one understands that process or that machine the way that person who's operating that day in and day out does. And I mean, the quickest way to shut down a continuous improvement effort is to say we don't have time to implement yeah. employee ideas. Um, I, I would argue that's probably one of the the biggest functions you have as a leader is to actively solicit those ideas and, and when, when they're appropriate, you know, experiment with them, see if they work or not. Um, that really, it's, it's kind of interesting to see the, the level of engagement you get after that. The, the operators, yeah. they get excited. They'll be saying, I've been complaining about this for years and you actually listened to me and you did something about it. Um, I think that might have an impact on, on productivity, right? When they feel like yeah. they're actually being listened to. So it's quite remarkable. Yeah. And there's a difference between actually being listened to, or I try to call time out when I hear someone say, we want, we want employees to feel like they were involved. I'm like, wait a minute. No, (laughs) it's either are involved or are not involved. It's a Yoda moment there. But when, when, um, I'm curious if if you have any stories around this idea, but when I've been to the Toyota plant in San Antonio with healthcare people, uh, I remember vividly one tour where uh, somebody asked, basically, you know, the visitor center has a lot of uh, displays about Kaizen. You've mentioned Kaizen, but it seemed like people were busy building trucks. So when do you do improvement? And, you know, the tour guide who had been, I think, like a plastic shop team member beforehand said, well, you know, it's pretty simple. If I have an idea and we don't have time to work on it during the day, I talked to my team leader and generally they approve the overtime to work on it. And like jaws dropped because I think like from the healthcare culture perspective, generally speaking, people are like, wow, overtime is bad. We're supposed to minimize overtime. Like, well, but what if you're using overtime for a good purpose? And 
You know, it's just these, these cultural uh, assumptions are interesting um, to, to discover when the Toyota culture kind of intersects with a different type of culture. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing that we've done to to try to mitigate some of that, I mean, we get that sometimes too, that the, oh, the overtime, we can't be working that. And and one way we found to help facilitate, you know, implementing those ideas, even with those constraints is, first off, it's it's important, how do you actually get those ideas? What tactically, what does that look like? And the best way that I've found is, is doing gamble walks and not gamble walks with the purpose of just, you know, kind of walking around observing the facility and then going back to your office. But, you know, I'll stop people and I'll say, you know, how's your day going, right? Is there anything that you need help with? Are you having any problems? And if they mention, you know, hey, I'm really struggling with trying to get, I'm having an interference on this part. It's really hard to assemble. I'll take it a step further and I'll say, you know, what would make this better? You know, how, what's the way that you think that we might be able to improve this? And they usually have, you know, two or three ideas because they've been struggling with it for so long. And if I can't, if we can't get the time to have the employee directly engaged in implementing that idea, you know, I'll, I'll kind of pull it off to the side and see what I can do to facilitate implementing that, bring it back to the employee saying, hey, I heard your idea about, you know, moving this, this piece over here so we'd have some clearance to fit this part in. Do you want to, I made a mock-up. Do you want to try it? Let me know what you think. And they're, they're usually thrilled to try it and, you know, we'll go back and we'll adjust it and we'll bring it back to them. So if, if a culture is resistant to kind of giving the employees some time to actually work through the, the ideas themselves, um, that's a workaround that I found that could be somewhat mm-hmm. effective. Yeah. Well, so let, let's transition a little bit to um, yeah. working outside of Toyota now. And, you know, there's a, a blog post that you wrote for me on lean blog that I really recommend. I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes. That blog post was titled how 200 jobs were saved by engaging employees in continuous improvement. Um, I was wondering, you know, if you can kind of tee up that story um, in sort of, you know, transition, um, you know, the, 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 the high level story from uh, Toyota to working in, in a different culture. What, what other types of things did you see that, that are sort of noteworthy in your mind? Yeah, um, yeah, I wrote about this in my blog as well. Um, that just the the struggle I had with leaving Toyota and moving into another culture. Um, I was spoiled at Toyota. It was it was like working in a well oiled machine. It was like a, a well conducted orchestra. It was it was just it was a joy to be there and. Um, my current, my current role, um, like I said, the, the culture is fantastic and the way that it allows me to, to really try some of these things that I learned at Toyota. But I remember um, going up to an operator at a machine one day early in my, my new role and, you know, watching this process, trying to understand it. And I, I asked him, I said, you know, can I look at your standard work? I'm just kind of curious how this process works. And he looks at me with this blank look on his, on his face. And I realized, oh that he doesn't have standard work for his mm. process, oh, right? And, and it, was, it was very jarring to me. And I almost went through like this period of withdrawal from Toyota where I was like, oh, all these things that I'm used to having, they're not there. But then I, I started to slowly realize that, you know, my time at Toyota was really an investment in me. Um, and moving outside of Toyota, I saw that it was, it was my role to invest in others now. And that to me was a big transition in my career. And I started, it became fun. 
um, when someone doesn't have something as basic as, you know, a tool board to, to keep all their tools there, some, some basic 5S, and you're through engaging them, you're able to help them do that. And then you see how excited they get that every day when they walk in on their shift, they know that their rubber mallet is always going to be in the same place on their tool board and they're not going to have to search for it for 10 minutes. Um, it's just, it's so, it's so rewarding. So it was, it was difficult at first, um, but being able to bring some of the continuous improvement concepts to people and really coach and develop them. Um, it's been an extremely rewarding experience. Yeah. Well, and so, you know, it's great to hear you talk about that opportunity to, to help others and to develop others. That sounds very much, I, I, you know, Part of the, uh, the the Toyota culture that you can bring um, to other places you know, as an individual, and you know helping people by you know saving, preserving jobs. Um, you know, I definitely encourage people. You know, I think the, the, there'll be a long. You know, there's the longer version of the story on the blog. I'll also point to that excellent blog post that you wrote that you mentioned there. You know, reflections on leaving Toyota. But you know, what was the situation? Why were these jobs at risk? What was happening? So it started um, when I got a call from one of our vice presidents and he, 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 I picked up the phone and he said, you know, Jess, I need your help. And he said, we have a, a facility that we're thinking about shutting down. Um, this facility, had, I had heard of it. I knew it had struggled for a long time um, with productivity and I knew morale there was, it was a tough situation. And uh, the customer contract was coming to a close and he said, I'm not, I'm not sure we want to keep this place open. And he said, I think that we owe it to the people there to go in and give it one last shot. And I'd like you to, to lead that effort. And I remember, uh, of course I agreed. It was kind of a voluntold situation, but um, I remember hanging up the phone and just putting my head in my hands at my desk because I knew that there were capable people who had already gone into that facility and they had tried to help it and the results hadn't sustained. And I realized that there was probably a high likelihood that this was going to fail as well. And just feeling the weight of there was 200 people at that facility. And I realized that, you know, this next effort was really going to determine their fate. And I had never faced a project like that before. And um, so the first thing I did is, you know, I went to, I needed to go see the site. I needed to, to understand the situation for myself. And, and what I found, it was, it was chaos. Um, they were scrambling to get orders out on time. There was um, a lot of firefighting going on, just lack of basic 5S, just, you know, things all over the floor, no organization. Um, it was clear that no one had, you know, educated some of the, the line leaders on just basic, you know, good manufacturing practices. So we're seeing a ton of overbuild, you know, they're, they're doing batch production, right? All the, all those uh, old manufacturing techniques that we know don't work as well. And, and the thing that just struck me the most that really um, placed a burden on me was just how beaten down everyone was. I mean, for three years, they hadn't been performing well and they knew it. Um, and they were working as hard as they could to try to get their, their numbers up and, and production better. And it was just, it was heartbreaking, but I could tell talking with the people that they were very motivated. They, they wanted to get better. They just, they just didn't know how. And so, uh, I mean, what were some of the other things you did then to help 
people see or to, to move things along or, you know, if, if it was, I mean, I've, I feel the weight of that situation on my shoulders because I've, I've been in environments like that, unfortunately, in uh, manufacturing and, and in healthcare. I mean, how, how, do you, how do you decide what to focus on? Where do you even start? Well, in previous works that I've done, you know, I've always known how important it was to engage people. Um, But in this effort, I knew that, you know, if we were going to stand a chance of succeeding, we were going to have to engage every one of those 200 people in that facility. And so the the first thing that we did is we formed a steering team. So these are people that were represented of every department in the plant. And I knew that I wasn't going to be able to reach all 200 people myself um, as much as I would like to. I just couldn't. So I said, we're, I'm going to invest in this, this core group, right? And we're going to have them kind of bring the effort throughout the plan, which is a better strategy anyway. You know, it's, you know you've heard the, I'm from corporate, I'm here to help, right? Versus, mm-hmm. and, you know, the, the people from the plan actually leading the effort. And so we formed the team and, and one of the defining moments for us was one of our first meetings as a team. And, you know, we always, I'm always very passionate about, well, let's start with why, why are we doing this? What do we expect to happen? And, you know, I asked them, I said, why are we here? And they said, well, we, we need to get our numbers up, our productivity. And I said, no, 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 that's not why we're here. And I said, how about this? You know, I think we're here to ensure security for our jobs, ourselves and our families. And I said, can you rally around that? And just kind of saw the light go on and their eyes are like, yeah, absolutely. And they're starting to get to be passionate about it. And I, I said, I'm going to set another goal for you. I said, I think you're going to become the top performing site in the division. And they just looked at me with their mouths open. I mean, they had been the black sheep for the three years since they'd been opened. And I said, no, I think you can do it because I can tell that this is, this is a highly capable group of people. And I think setting that, that vision was that kind of our true north was really something that um, had an impact. So we started with that. And then we, we invested some time in coaching the leaders. You know, what does, what does a leader do? And we were very fortunate. We had a, gen, a new general manager at the site. She wasn't there. She was transitioning, so she wasn't there all the time. But she was someone that I would consider to be a, a servant leader at her heart. So she and I were we're practically best buddies throughout this whole effort, but we, we really spend a lot of time coaching people. And one of the, the ways that that looked like, you know, we hear leadership coaching, what does that actually look like? Um, is that we had everybody do gamble walks every day. And sometimes we would go out in pairs, sometimes we would go out individually. Um, but we coached them on, you know, we're, we're going out to look for problems. And we're going to look for ways that we can help people fix those problems. But the point is that we've got to get out on the floor and show them that, you know, we're engaged. We're not sitting in our offices. And I remember, you know, going out with someone and it was the ops manager. And I said, you know, every time we encounter a piece of trash, I said, you and I, we're going to pick it up. And he kind of looks at me like, there's so much trash. How are we going to get it all? I said, all right, we'll spend a couple hours picking up trash. And that act itself, it was just, it was symbolic to the employee saying that, no, we're, we're in this together, right? We're going to help you pick up trash to make your workplace cleaner. And, and that acts like that, I think, were really, really instrumental in kind of showing the servant leadership at the site. Yeah. 
And so, you know, in, in, in that process of, um, you know, inspiring others, challenging others, um, you know, kind of believing in them, what, what types of ideas did you see come forward that, that were helping, you know, help solve this uh, situation that everybody was in? So that was the other aspect of the Gemba Walks is, you know, we would go out with the purpose of finding problems, but also in actively soliciting um, people's ideas. And a lot of that would just happen, you know, organically as we're talking with them, you know, we'd, we'd kind of prompt them and say, hey, what do you think might be a good way to, to improve this? Um, one thing that, that struck me, so um, 5S tool boards can sometimes get a bad rap. So I didn't want to go in even though it was clear, pretty clear to me that that's what they needed. So I was talking with a supervisor one day and I said, yeah, it looks like um, you guys are, are spending a lot of time trying to find tools. And she goes, yeah, yeah, we are. We've only got one cabinet that houses all the tools. And I kind of said, yeah, what do you think might be a way that we could make sure each line has their own tools? And she's like, I think we just, you know, we've got like a tool center set up at each line. I was like, okay, good, good. And so, you know, it was, it was her, her idea. And what we did, though, instead of, you know, just going out and having the boards built, we actually brought her and a couple of line leaders into a room and we brought all the tools that they would need in one of their production lines into that room. And I said, I want you guys to lay out the tool board. You know, on this, this, we just used a conference room table. I said, lay it out the way you like. And, you know, they laid it out and then we bought a couple tool boards and we said, yeah, I want, you know, you guys build it, you know, and they built the tool boards. They actually had two different layouts. Some um, the line leaders came out with. So we had this kind of fun event where we had everyone in the plant vote on their favorite layout because they, we wanted to standardize it across the lines. Um, but that was, that was kind of a neat way to kind of really engage them and say, Hey, it's your tool board. What do you want it to look like? Well, and you know, I, I, there's so much to love about that story, but you know, the one, I, I think the the thing that comes 